0: Well, today we're continuing to walk through the book of Philippians, and if you have not been with us or you haven't memorized it, um, let me catch you up on what we've been talking about. Um, The theme of this book and the theme of this series comes from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, just one thing, here's the bottom line, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so Paul is speaking to these Roman citizens who live in a Roman colony surrounded by a bunch of Greek people. And they understood their job was to uphold the values of Rome amongst the Greeks, to do Caesar's thing amongst the Greeks. And Paul speaks to them as a Roman citizen himself and says, you've got a higher calling on earth than that. Your calling on earth is not just to, to be about the way of Rome, but to be about the way of heaven. The church is like a colony of heaven on earth. And then last week we saw that he said, and here's what the colony needs to be known for. Here's what citizens of heaven should be known for in the world. He says, you should have the same attitude as that of Jesus. And the way that he summarizes Jesus's attitude was with one word, humility. The church is to be a humble community, a community that puts other people ahead of ourselves, a community that looks out for other people's interests and other people's desires rather than our own, because that's who Jesus was. Jesus was so obedient to his father that he continued to serve and serve and serve and give and give and give until he gave his life. He left heaven, he came to earth, he went to a cross and he died, and then he was raised from the dead. And so Paul shared that with us so that we could know what kind of community that we are supposed to be. So Paul's vision for the church is that we would be a humble community like Jesus. So that's what we've talked about so far. Isn't it true that every community that you're a part of has a certain personality and culture that kind of defines it? Isn't that true? This is true of your family, right? Your family is different than other families. And the way that you know that is you've been around other families. And there are certain things that you do in your family that are different, some good, some bad, but, but it's just different. There are certain meals that you eat certain times of the year that other families don't eat that at that time of the year. There are certain ways that you think because, well, that's how we do it in our family. That's the personality of our family. Isn't that true? This is not just true of your family. This is true of, of a team that you might work on. You've been part of a company before, and at this company, this is how we do things, and there's just a feel to it. And you've been at another company, and maybe it was even in the same industry. Like you're a teacher, and you were just working at a new school, or you're a salesperson, and you're selling the same product, but you're in a different company now. And just the feel of it is different. Even though your job is basically the same on paper, the feel is different because that's how communities are, right? It's true of families. It's true of work. Communities have a certain personality and culture that mark it. And here's what else is true. You know this, that those communities that we're a part of have a way of shaping us. We are formed by the communities that we're in. Some of you are exactly like your mom. And some of you are trying to be the exact opposite of your mom, but your mom is shaping you because that's how communities work. This is also true of a boss maybe that you've had or a leader that you've been around. You've been around certain leaders and the way that they ran their team, the way that they treated you was inspiring and it made you feel good about yourself. And you've tried to to mimic or imitate some of those behaviors. But then you've also been around some leaders that you would love to forget some of the things that you experienced. And you also try to do the opposite of what you experienced with them. And this is true of so many things. The way that you coach has been influenced by coaches that you experienced. The way that you manage your finances has been influenced by the community in which you started to kind of do that. We're shaped by the communities that we're in. And... Not only is that true, but isn't this true? That to some degree, whether or not you are enjoying life is based on whether or not the community that you're in is healthy. So if you grew up in a home where, man, it was just really hard and you couldn't wait to escape, that affected the quality of your life at the at that time. If you've, been in a work environment that was really controlling and really domineering and it was a culture of fear, that's affected your life in a negative way. The quality of your life and whether or not you're enjoying life is in many ways based on the the quality of the community that you find yourselves in. That's one of the things that makes transitions hard is you're leaving a community and you're entering yourself into a new community and you're still trying to figure out how do they do it here? What is it like here? And that affects you. And some communities are more attractive than others, aren't they? Like there are some jobs where... Even though the job description was like perfect, this was you, you had your wife read it and she was like, what, that sounds like you. And you were so excited to go to work and do this thing. And then you got there and even though on paper, what you were gonna be doing was awesome, there was something about the culture in that place that made you not wanna do it. And the opposite is true. That there are times where you would be willing to take a job that it's not the perfect fit, but you just wanna be on that team. You just wanna be in that culture. You just wanna be around those people. Isn't that true? And here's why that matters. Because the church is supposed to be a community with a personality and a culture that looks and feels like Jesus. That's who the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be a humble community because that's who Jesus was. And the the church is supposed to be a community where as Paula Goff said in the video, there's just a feel to it. And you know, when you've been in those kinds of environments where there's just a feel to it, that's attractive, that's compelling, that that you want to be a part of, where you feel like I can be myself here. I can be known and loved here. I'm welcome here. I could thrive and flourish here. That's who the church is supposed to be. God's vision for redeeming the world was not saving a bunch of individual people. His vision for redeeming the world was to form a people who could so embody the way of Jesus on earth that it could literally be called the body of Christ. The book of Philippians is about how to form that kind of community. And today, the Apostle Paul is going to give us just one mark, one simple characteristic, one simple test to see if the church is that kind of community. On the surface, this is extremely simple. but in practice, it is extremely difficult. What he's going to say is important because if we are shaped by the communities that we're in, then to some extent, whether or not individual Christians become the Christians that God intends them to be depends on the health and humility of the community that they find themselves in. Let me say that a different way. Whether or not people become like Jesus in some degree is shaped by the health of their church. And whether or not people are attracted to Jesus outside the church is to to some degree based on the health of the church. And so this matters not just for discipleship that is helping people become like Jesus, but this matters for evangelism that is helping introduce people to Jesus. And so today we're just going to talk about one simple mark of a healthy church community. What would it practically look like if the church was marked by humility? That's what this little passage is about. So Philippians chapter two, verse 12. Verses 12 and 13 kind of summarize what Paul has said. And then he gives us the mark in verse 14. Look at verse 12. Therefore, therefore, because Jesus left heaven and came to earth, because Jesus was humble, because Jesus went to the cross and died so that you could be forgiven of your sins, so that you could have hope of new life, because Jesus was humble and didn't just die on the cross, but was raised from the dead. Because Jesus has now been given the name above every name, the name Lord, because that's true, here's what's supposed to happen. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, just as you've always obeyed, that is, just as you heard the message of Jesus and responded to it in repentance and faith when you first heard about it, so now continue to hear and respond to the message of Jesus. So when you first heard about what Jesus had done, you heard it and you believed it, you acted upon it. Keep doing that, he says. Continue to do that, not only in my presence, like you did when I first told you the message, but now even more in my absence when I'm away. Keep doing that. Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this little sentence, we could go super deep and we just, uh, I tried to do that in the first service and I got tangled up and we're just gonna skip over some of that. Um, and I'm just gonna summarize it for you, all right? Um essentially what Paul is saying here is to work out means to stay committed to a project until it's completed. So he's saying, so just as you heard it, you heard this message and you obeyed it then, hear it and continue to obey it now. Work out, stay, stay committed to the progress of this thing. And this thing that you're supposed to stay committed to is your own salvation. And salvation here refers to the total saving work that Christ has done. And that includes being saved, forgiven from your past sins, freed from your past, and also being freed from sin now so that you continue, can, can continue to follow Jesus. And it also refers to the salvation that we have experienced. We can be part of a community that is not dominated by sin. We can be part of a community that is healthy and humble because of what Jesus did. And that I think is the primary sense that Paul has in mind when he uses the word salvation here. He's saying as a church community, as a group of people, stay committed to being healthy, to being humble as a group of people. He's saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is a little phrase that refers to having a posture of humility. Again, we could talk more in depth about that. If you're interested in that, we can talk in the hallway after this. But uh, essentially, that little phrase means to have a posture of humility, to be concerned about doing your responsibility towards other people. And what is our responsibility towards other people? to serve them, to think about their interests ahead of our own, to consider them as more important than us, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. So he's saying, hey, continue to pursue health as a community with a posture of humility. That's what Paul is saying. Humbly and obediently work at achieving spiritual health in your community. And then he gives us some good news verse 13 for it is god who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure we are not alone in the effort to be a healthy and humble community god's spirit is with us god is working in us to to renew our minds if we will continue to hear and respond to the message of jesus on a regular basis then we can experience life without sin. We can experience life in obedience and God is actually the one who's working in us to make that happen. The spirit of God is at work. So we need to humbly obey God, pursue this healthy community. God is the energizer behind that. So what does that look like? So the church is supposed to look like Jesus, have the personality of Jesus. All these communities have this culture, this personality that defines them. Ours is supposed to be defined by Jesus. We're supposed to be humble. We're supposed to be healthy. Okay, what does that look like? This next verse is one of the most complex verses in the Bible. Not because it's hard to understand, but because it's really hard to do. Verse 14. Here's the test. Here's the mark that you can use to see how humble and healthy of a community you have. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Now, when I was in college, I went to this Bible college and I was in a preaching class and everybody in the class uh, had to draw a passage that they were gonna preach on. And there was this little hat that went around the room, and literally verses were written on a little torn up piece of paper, and you had to draw. And I drew Philippians 2 14 through 16. And the very first thing I did was complain. <laughs> <laughs> this is a hard thing to do. I mean, we could talk about the Greek words, grumble, and argue, but it's not complex. It's complex to do. And the reason, I think, is a couple things. First, um, complaining and arguing just feel so natural. They just come so naturally. Like you never have to teach somebody to complain. I didn't, you know, have to sit down with my daughter and you you don't have to do this with your kids where it's like, hey, if we give you something to eat that you don't really want for dinner tonight, you know what? Rather than just eat it, you should throw a fit about it. Let us know how much you hate this thing. You never had to reason with someone into learning to complain or argue. This is just a natural thing. And there are all kinds of things that you can find in your life to complain about. You don't have to work very hard. The weather. Yeah, start. Yeah, good. I mean, like literally, you can find stuff. The service in a restaurant, traffic, Um, I made a list, Uh, (laughs) football isn't going the way you want it to, Um, you have to wear a mask, and I get to take it off up here, and so there, you have something to complain about, there you go. Um, Things are out of stock, and shipping is delayed. Uh, My in-laws are ordering a couch, and they told them that it would be, the earliest it would be available is March, that's a long time. You know, and so, hey, write to the owner of the company and let him know peace of your mind, right? You got stuff to complain about. Um, you come to church and there's stuff to complain about. I don't like the way that they do those lights up there. Why did we do those songs? Why did we do those types of songs? Right? Now I'm so ooh, starting to step on. It's like, oh, uh, gosh, talk about the songs. The worst worst job in a church is the the music or tech director because nothing's ever right. Um, Complaining and arguing just comes natural and there's lots of easy ways. You can find ways to complain. I mean, there's stuff to complain about. The other thing that makes complaining and arguing, I think, so easy is it can feel just like a personality trait. Like some people are extroverts, some people are introverts. Some people complain Some people see the bright side. And so that's just how I am. It's my personality. Even my sense of humor is based on pointing out things that are not quite the way that they should be. Some people argue, some people just keep their mouth shut. It's just a personality trait. Well, that's just the way he is. That's just the way I am. In fact, I have never, maybe you have, but I've never been in any kind of accountability group or prayer circle where we're going around and like sharing what we're struggling with, where the thing that somebody was going to need prayer for or help overcoming was complaining and arguing. Maybe you've been in that circle. I haven't. I've heard a lot of other crazy stuff in those circles, but I've never heard something just simple like, yeah, I've really been complaining too much because we don't think about complaining like it's a sin. Complaining is just something that you do. And some people do it more than others, just based on how they're wired. But it's not a sin. I mean, how could something that is so easy be a sin? How could something that comes so naturally be a sin? See, it it just seems natural, like it's a personality trait. And yet Paul says to do everything without grumbling and arguing. Grumbling and arguing, these little phrases refer to behind the scenes little comments, little conversations that stir things up rather than bring people together. They stir things up rather than bring people together. And Paul's primary concern here is not what you should do in the midst, in the midst of intense suffering or intense persecution even though he's including that. Paul's primary concern here is what you should do in the ordinary, everyday things that get on your nerves. And the reason we know that is because the little words that he uses, he borrows from the Old Testament, where the Israelites were grumbling and arguing because they were having to eat the same food every day. So here's the context. The Israelites had been rescued from slavery in Egypt and were now free. God rescued them. And then God was providing food for them every day. This food from heaven would come down. It was like a bread pastry type kind of deal called manna and they would eat it. And there was enough every single day and that's what they were living off of. And people got tired of eating the same meal every day. And so they started to complain. And they started to even say, it was better when we were slaves in Egypt. I hate this. What kind of God would rescue us and then give us the same meal every day? Could we mix it up a little bit? And here's how I know that I have a problem with complaining and arguing, is when I think about that story, I resonate with the Israelites, not with God. I go, wait a minute, God, yeah. Wait, aren't you like a good and, you know, merciful God? Aren't you like wealthy and resource? Couldn't you do anything? You could have given them an awesome meal every day and mixed it up and had variety. And you could have had a menu even, and people could have submitted requests for the menu. <laughs> but instead, you're just giving them the same thing every day. How harsh is that? instead, God looks at that situation and goes, is our perspective off here? And so Paul is saying, in the ordinary everyday things that get on your nerves, do all of it without grumbling or arguing. When I was in college, one of my best friends um, asked if if she could talk with me. And we were in this group of people and she said, Nate, could I talk to you for just a minute? And the group kind of moved on and um, she and I stayed back. And uh, she said, I just have something I want to talk to you about. And I thought she was about to tell me, you know, a compliment, how great I am, you know, something. Um, And instead she said, um, Nate, whenever you and I are in a conversation, and a disagreement comes up. It feels to me like the conversation immediately turns in to an opportunity for you to win and me to lose. And I said, yeah, but you don't understand the way that, the the reason that, that's a hard thing to hear. It is in me to resist Philippians 2.14. I am a complainer and arguer by nature. And if you can resonate with that, then maybe you need to heed that same warning from my friend. If, If every disagreement that you have with your spouse it's an opportunity for you to win. Then you are living in sin and not the gospel. And that is not something I'm saying to you that I'm not also saying to me. But because I'm just naturally like, don't we have to stand up for stuff? I mean, like I'm naturally wired that way then the tension I feel is, but ugh, I mean, we got to stand up for truth. And does this mean just like the first person who talks that they got, you know, their opinion goes and we just have to live with it just because they got there first. I don't think so. Um, our leadership team right now uh, just finished a book by Patrick Lencioni about um Healthy teams, and one of the marks of a team that he talks about is um, actually the presence of conflict. Unhealthy, dysfunctional teams are teams where there's what he calls artificial harmony. That is, you get into the meeting, the boss says, Here's what we're doing, everybody just kind of quietly says, Okay, and takes notes, and then everybody leaves. And they're not actually bought into what's about to happen. Nobody agrees with what we're doing, but everybody knows you stay quiet and you're not allowed to talk or voice your opinion. And that is not what Paul is after here. He's not trying to form a community where the moment that the first opinion was offered, that's what we have to do. And everybody else just... Instead, what he's after is not this artificial harmony but instead he's after this spirit of of humility this spirit of we're in this together it's it's the opposite of a spirit of divisiveness of of just i want to stir things up i want to be a naysayer i want to to be the devil's advocate all the time i want to I want to stir up the drama. That's the attitude, the spirit that he's against. And you know the difference between someone who voices a complaint in a way that's humble and in a way that's proud. I mean, you've felt that before. And that's what Paul is after here. It's not that you never stand up for something that contradicts so many other passages. He told us in chapter one to stand firm in the faith. So it's not that you're just this passive, whoever talks first, well, we have to do what they do. We have to do what they say. It's, It's a culture of humility so that the person who talks first actually wants for other people to be able to weigh in. That's why leadership many times is questions, not answers. And so it's a culture where the person who speaks also wants to know what other people think. And we want to be able to come to agreement. We're going to talk about that more in chapter four when Paul tells them to agree in the Lord. Talk about what that means. But so it's not just passive. So how do you distinguish though when it's time for you to speak and when it's time for you to be quiet? How do you know the difference? Well, thankfully you have the spirit of God to give you wisdom. But here are some things that I have found helpful. This is from um, a sermon I heard where a pastor was quoting Jonathan Edwards. And then I went and found this section where Jonathan Edwards talks about um, this. He's talking about a healthy church community. And I've adapted some of his language to make it a little bit more readable. But here are some tests that he gives for you to think about. He says, pride makes you more aware of others' faults than your own. Humility disposes you to be far more aware of your own faults than others. So how do you know if it's time to complain, if it's time to speak up? Well, pride would lead you to need to speak up about everything that they are doing wrong but get really offended when somebody needs to speak up about you. So are you, are you more aware of their faults than your own? Then maybe it's not time yet for you to speak up. Pride, he says, leads you to speak of others' faults with contempt and disdain. Humility leads you to speak of their faults with grief and mercy. So when you see someone who has this flaw or this fault or even this pattern of decision-making that's making their life a mess, do you look at them and think, they're so stupid. I can't believe that anybody would live like that. This is absolutely ridiculous that people in the world, which, and, and we're putting those kinds of people in positions to make this. I mean, that's Pride would say. Humility leads you to speak of their faults with grief and mercy. You don't pretend like, well, they don't have anything wrong with them. But instead, when you talk about their faults, it's with, man, isn't it sad? Doesn't it break your heart that that they live that way? And you can't fake that. Humility causes you to just, ah, I wish, I wish it was different for them. Life would be so much better for them if it was different. There's a grief and mercy to that. Pride, he says, leads you to separate from people who have criticized you or you have criticized. Isn't that true? That once you've voiced a complaint about someone, once you've voiced criticism, you need to separate from them because it, you just, uh, it feels, I don't, I don't wanna be around them anymore. Or if they've criticized you, you have to be separated from them. Humility, he says, leads you to stick with people in tough times and not give up on them. Pride, this is maybe the most important. Pride leads you to be dogmatic about every point of belief. You can't distinguish between major and minor points because everything you believe is major. well, everything I believe I have to stand up for because it's all important. If everything you believe is a major point, then maybe there's pride at work. Lastly, he says, pride leads you to confront because you like winning or avoid confrontation because you don't want to lose. If you overlove confrontation or you never do it, you have pride. Humility only confronts when it's necessary. If we are going to be a loving, humble, healthy community that has the personality of Jesus, then we have got to do all things without grumbling or arguing. And now Paul tells us three things that happen when we grumble and argue. First, he says that grumbling and arguing undermines our reputation. Look at verse 15. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. He says, if you become a grumbler and an arguer, if that's what you're known for, it will undermine your reputation. It will undermine your purity, your consistency. It will undermine your integrity. Isn't that true? If you've ever worked with people And you know, as soon as you let them know about something you're doing or they're going to be upset or they're going to... Isn't it true that you lose respect for those people? Paul says, that's what's going to happen to the community. Then he says, not only is it going to undermine your reputation, but it's going to undermine your influence. Look at the rest of verse 15. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. The church is intended to be a light to the world, to have influence, to be attractive, to be the kind of community that that so loves one another, that's so connected with one another that people just, they, they want to be a part of it. It's irresistible. It's attractive. It's compelling. And Paul says that is undermined by grumbling and arguing. People don't want to be that, uh, part of that kind of community. People don't want to be part of that kind of thing. Paul is kind of using some, he's kind of being clever here. He's borrowing from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse five. You can go read that sometime. And he's basically saying what Israel failed to do because they grumbled and argued. God is going to do through you if you will humble yourself. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. The church can be that because we have the spirit of God empowering us to do this. So let us humble ourselves and walk in step with him. He says, this is going to happen by holding firm to the word of life, referring to the message of Jesus. Then he says, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. Now here's the third little point that he makes about grumbling and arguing. Not only does it undermine your reputation, and your influence. It also undermines your leaders. Now on the surface, this feels a little selfish to me. Like, Paul, really? You want them to do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you can stand before Jesus someday and not have to feel bad? But Paul, I think, is just highlighting a principle here. That is, someday, he's going to have to stand and give an account for the kind of community that this church that he started turned out to be. And he's saying, if you're grumbling and arguing, you're not going to become the kind of community God designed you to be. And I'm going to have to give an account for that. And there's a principle there, that every time you complain or argue, there is some authority that is undermined. If you're sitting at a red light, like, I can't believe this. I mean, nobody ever comes this way. And somebody programmed that. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't get why we run that play on second and nine. Somebody called that play. So you see the principle? Complaining and arguing on some level undermines leaders. And in Paul's mind, that's not a good thing for the community of faith. He goes on to say, verse 17, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. This is kind of a confusing verse, but I think essentially what he's saying is, if your life is like this sacrifice that you're living to God, even if my life is like an additional sacrifice, an offering that's poured on top of that, even if I have to give my life, even if I die trying to serve you, trying to help you become this loving, humble, healthy community, it'll be worth it. And I rejoice when he says, verse 18, in the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. His perspective that we talked about in chapter one is still shining through. He's going, hey, uh, just so you don't forget, I'm in prison, remember? What were you complaining about again? Hey, um, Jesus left heaven and came to earth. What were you upset about? What was the thing? Oh, you guys are having to eat the same meal every day. Okay, got it. See how he's putting something small, complaining, grumbling, arguing in light of something much bigger. And if your thoughts are on the big things and not the small things, if like he says in chapter four, verse, verse eight, that you think about things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, anything morally excellent, anything praiseworthy, if you think about those things, if your mind is on the big things, if your eyes are on Jesus, you won't complain and argue. Let me ask you something. Is that true of your life? Is that true of our life as a church? Is the church more known as a loving, united community or a proud and argumentative bunch? What would our online presence say? Are you more known as a loving person of peace or a person with strong opinions about everything? What would your online presence say? The church is called to be a healthy and humble community community that can shine. In the world, Jesus said, By this, the world will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And how did he love? He came to serve. And that is what we are called to do. My hope is that culture is transformed and that Seattle is a better place to live, a more godly place to live. I hope that that's true of every place in the world, that every place would, would, would more embody the ways of God and not the ways of man. But here's the deal. If, if the culture is going to look like Jesus outside the church, First, it has to look like Jesus inside the church. Before the culture can look like Jesus outside the church, it has to look like Jesus inside the church. And that is what Paul is calling us to. To be a community of people who are so moved by what God has done for us in his son, Jesus, that I can have grace for you even when you disagree that I can have the courage to be quiet, that I can have the courage to confront when necessary a community that is humble and healthy so that what Paula Goff said can be true that there was just a feel to it. There was a feel to it. There was a welcoming, come on in, she said. That is who the church is supposed to be. Why? Because we're so smart and we have it all figured out. We're better than all the people in the other places of the world. No. No. In fact, that's the opposite. The church is to be that way because that's who Jesus has been to us. Our hope is not that we're all gonna be so great that we're gonna form this great community that's gonna transform the world. Our hope is that even though we fall so short of that, God has sent his son, Jesus to make it possible for us to be forgiven of our pride and make it possible for us to follow him. Let me pray for you and ask the Holy Spirit to help us with this. Father, thank you that we are not made right in your sight by doing all things without grumbling or arguing. God, we are made right in your sight because Jesus did all things without grumbling and arguing. God, would you help us to trust him, to follow him. And would you help our community to look like him as a result? Give us the wisdom to know what to do with the message that we've heard today and the courage to do it. It's in Jesus' name that I ask, amen.